Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more, plank the second to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. On today's episode I am chatting with the author James L. Sutter. Uh, We talk about a whole bunch of things. As always, I would never allow myself to be tethered to one tiny topic and we whiz all over the place. And I was thrilled to be speaking to him. Obviously, as I always say, uh, I wouldn't introduce a guest by saying I had no interest having them on. Like, I choose who I invite onto the podcast. So, clearly, everyone, really, I'm quite excited to, very excited to see. Um, But, uh, James has just got such a fascinating to me and, and, and diverse body of work behind him because he's written some role-playing stuff for the Pathfinder, uh, for Pathfinder, which if you don't know is sort of like a, a, role, a, a very popular role-playing game that sort of branched off from Dungeons and Dragons a few years ago and is sort of very similar world of fantasy adventures and he's done a lot of creating their own unique world and we talk about that but also he's got a YA queer romance coming out if you're listening to this on the day of release like literally today that's how uh, that's how on the the bleeding edge of publishers release schedules I am is uh, I've jumped on on that to sync our release with uh, the release of the book and uh, he's written fiction before as well as writing kind of lore and content for the but this is a particular jump into uh, he, you know his own a story that it was really important to him and you'll hear him talk about it but also uh something that's you know not fantasy but uh is set in the real world i i'm only hesitating because sometimes i i pause about saying oh here's the real world and here's fantasy clearly i understand that there's a distinction between those two things but i think actually in terms of our own imaginations and our own minds and the way worlds are inflected by our perspectives and stuff i i, I don't see it as and, and because of the different ways that he, uh, we as humans see the world i don't see it as necessarily being a completely hard line and i, w- I would like those genres to always feel like they can move in and out of one another that one isn't realism and the other isn't fantasy necessarily that they can both be strategies or little dollops of color that, that can go into each other but nonetheless uh that you know that's the uh genre he's working in and it's really nice because on one hand like uh fantasy and role playing is i'm a fantasy author both my novels have been sort of broadly in that genre and i play a lot of games as some of you may know so those are areas i feel really super confident and uh in those worlds and as much as I've got, you know, bags and oodles of respect for uh, romance authors, um, it, it's not something I've ever tried writing, except 
in the plot of something else and it's not something I've really sat down and, and read an awful lot of and I need I always that's why it's always so great to have people on the show who write things that are different to me which is pretty much everyone but particularly when it's not an area that's in my expertise and the same would be true of say crime uh, and so I, I, I feel like it's great to have authors who can bring some perspective from those areas and talk about it and talk about why they kind of love it and it's uh, yeah it just was really exciting and um james just has a lot of like value to offer and i great ideas and articulates them all really well but it was also i don't want to ever put this front and center of someone because it, it sounds like i'm down with faint praise but also it was just like really lovely and nice and a real pleasure to talk to um and you know has loads going for him in terms of talent and his ability and the stories he tells as well but just um i just re i had a really lovely time talking to him as well and uh you'll hear that i hope that comes across in the interview but uh it, it i i feel like it's always uh unless the only thing i could say about someone was oh, it seemed nice and then it might might imply uh, that maybe their writing could use some work, but I don't. I, I, you know, I'm not not leading with that as a reason you should listen to this interview. But um, it, it was something that came across to me, and so uh, I wish him all the best with the release of his new novel, which you can pick up because I'll put a link in the show notes, stroke description, stroke whatever you call the bit under the podcast where it tells you about the podcast. There'll be a link there where you can go and grab a copy of Dark Hearts for yourself in one of a variety of formats i hope you enjoy it you know you can just go and read the first bit if you want uh, online and decide if you want to buy the rest but i i think it's uh i think it'd be wonderful to support him and i'm sure the book is going to do tremendously well if you like today's episode or you enjoy listening to this podcast and you would like to support me in the community, then you can uh, go onto my coffee page. That's ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. Or click the link in the show notes and uh, drop me a few beans, which helps keep the lights on. I've just paid for this year's hosting costs for the podcast. Um, and I, you know, it would be nice if the podcast didn't actively cost me money to keep doing. And so that is really appreciated. And finally, I'm an author. And uh, if you ever want to check out my stuff because you think it'd be interesting and you would enjoy it or indeed to support me, my career and my ability to feed my family, either of those motivations or indeed both are valid and I still get paid the same amount. You can click the link below, pick up something. My new book is called Coward, Why We Get Anxious and What We Can Do About It. And it's all about my experiences with anxiety and panic and me going on a little adventure to try and find out ways to get better uh, i've got a couple of novels called the N N honors and the ice house um any of that would be super appreciated but that's it that i'm done with you oh except to say one more thing which is that we've got a discord we've got death of a thousand cuts discord i'll put a link to that in the show notes and if you'd like to join us to talk about writing to post some of your work i promise 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 i'm gonna do a few first page uh, critique episodes coming up where I look at people's first pages they they are coming I just want to get out uh, all uh, the interviews I've done as sort of a time lead it turns out the release schedules of various people's books are such that I just want to make sure I'm honoring the time that they gave up to be involved um, by trying to get them out at a time that's useful 
to their publicity engine so i hope that's all right but i'm looking forward to getting stuck into some first pages and taking the podcast back to its roots which is me sort of being not grumpy about people's work but jokingly critical about their work while hopefully helping you to make your work better and then you can just take the credit for it that's the thing is i can go buh, 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 don't do this and then you can make the changes and then you will get the money and a claim for having the better writing with your name on it so you're welcome i suppose all right i'm gonna shush now that really is the end please i beg of you enjoy me chatting with james l sutter cool so the first thing i wanted to ask is can you remember a time when you first realized that stories were special that i first realized they were special i mean i think i've always liked reading um or being read to you know i can remember uh, being a kid and like anytime my grandparents would stay with us, I would go wake up in the morning and then like run in and jump into their bed and like often, you know, wake them up and just that getting read to in bed was this delightful thing. Um, and so I think that's probably where it started. Uh, you know, I think I was always read to as a kid. Um, but then very quickly I discovered that like, Oh, this is a thing that you can just do. And then I was I was hooked. Right. Like that seems like magic. Like anytime I see something I love, whether it's media or music or, you know, whatever, I always want to try to do it myself. And so there was that started early as a kid where I was, you know, like, oh, I'm going to type a novel on this old typewriter. I'm going to try to draw my own comics, you know, that kind of stuff. Do you remember any stories growing up that you particularly like Doug, that like, did you have some like, what were your favourite stories or authors that you were getting into? That, that that those ones that you just go, oh, this is this is it. This is the thing that I'm going to spend the rest of my life kind of chasing in a way. Right, right. Well, I can remember a bunch of them. It's interesting because, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm 39. Literature has changed a lot since I was a child. Uh, and so there's plenty of stuff that I loved as a kid that I wouldn't recommend now. Um, which is why I actually a while ago, uh, I think when my brother, maybe when he turned 30, I bought him a bunch of books, like fantasy novels that I had loved when I was younger because um, he was just sort of starting to really get into reading a bunch. Uh, and so I was like, OK, you got to read all this stuff that was very formative for me. And he came back and was like, half of this is crap. And I was like, what? And I read through it and I was like, oh, God, you're right. Like this was very important to me at the time. But now that I'm older, like it's it hasn't aged well. So now I have this policy of trying not to recommend anything that I haven't read in like the last five or ten years. <laughs> just you, you never know. Right. Like you get better. Um, but I do remember in terms of stuff that I think has stood the test of time. I remember the Enchanted Forest Chronicles by Patricia C. Reed. Have you read those? I haven't read them. No. Oh, they. I think the. The first one, it's a little bit uh, chronology of when they came out is different than the storyline of the books. But uh, I think Dealing with Dragons was the first one and the first one that I read. And it's about a princess who decides she doesn't want to do traditional princess things and runs away to voluntarily 
be captured by a dragon and go live with the dragons. And it was just so delightful. Like the world feels so sweet and friendly, yet also really interesting. And there's all this good world building. And it's just like, it's just like the relaxation of taking a warm shower. Like that's what I feel like with those books. Like it just is so positive. Um, so I'd still, I'd still hold those up as some quality, uh, I guess they're probably middle grade, but I don't know that middle grade even existed when we were kids. Uh, so, but it's kind of for that age group. Yeah, it's funny. Look, going back to books, and I've, I've got a six-year-old daughter, and so I know that feeling of going, "Oh, I can't wait to show you this thing that I haven't revisited since I was a child," and then I start reading it or watching it, and immediately I'm like, "Oh no, <laughs> maybe it's just not stood up, or maybe there are things that." I didn't pick up as a kid that now I'm like that I wow okay that's really uh has aged poorly and seems bad and yeah it's it's weird isn't it it's it can they I think they call it like the, it's been visited by the suck fairy <laughs> yes yes exactly or I think my uh my co-workers when I was still at Paizo used to call it the uh the crawl effect of stuff that you loved as a kid that maybe didn't age well but, you know, I feel like every generation goes through this, and it's one of the reasons why I have a really complicated relationship with the idea of classics, quote unquote. You know, especially in science fiction, you'll always see people saying, oh, you know, people need to read the classics, you know, Asimov and Heinlein and stuff. And I say, you know, they really don't, because I feel like the classics to you are always the things that had a big impact on you. But like, times change. People are growing up in different contexts. And so I don't think that people need to read the things that were important for me. They're going to find books that are coming out now that do for them now what other books did for me when I was their age. And I think that's how it should be. I think the art form and the genre needs to evolve. Uh, But, you know, it's hard because I also I don't want to throw under the bus books that I loved when I was younger because I did learn so much for them. Um, Like there's one, uh, the Guardians of the Flame series by Joel Rosenberg. I loved when I was a kid and I learned so much from it. Um, But there is a scene in that first book where it's got every trigger you could imagine. There's sexual violence. There's probably stuff around disability that is not great. Like just lots of stuff where you would go, Ooh, like this, this isn't comfortable. And yet I can still remember the exact scene where it was the first time I realized that music, that like, uh, language in a novel could have rhythm in the same way that music has rhythm. You know, he's going through and like breaking up scenes in this very particular way where you're getting this steady increasing drum beat as it ramps up. And, you know, and he's repeating certain words. And it was where I first went, oh, you can do this. And it's reflecting like the character's heartbeat getting steadily more and more, uh, you know, quick and hard as he becomes, you know, as it's it's a berserker, essentially, in this chapter. And just the first time that I had seen that done, something clicked in my brain because I'm also a musician. And it was the first time I realized that those two lock together and can be used like that. And so that's hugely important. And I'm going to owe him a debt of gratitude for my, you know, my whole career, even though I probably wouldn't recommend that book now, you know? 
Wow, that's amazing. That's so, that's a wonderful description of, I'm, I was sort of nodding along because I was thinking of all the books that I read growing up that um, I had sort of similar, exp- like those aha moments or what I sometimes speaking to authors, you know, because I've recorded so many of these interviews now and it, it there's often a moment that is I think I'd start to think of it as sort of someone's permission moment where they're reading something and they go oh you're allowed we're allowed to do that oh and, and sometimes that's that comes in the form of a person as well it does sound like you were wrapped in people who were you know saying hey stories are great you know reading to you in bed um that they were associated with warm things from the start but uh, and there's lots of books that I read, you know, I, 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 yeah, I wouldn't necessarily recommend to someone now, but it's that urge I think we have to, to give someone that permission moment, to give them that, and, and it, unfortunately it's not, we don't know what that book's going to be for them. So we just pick the ones that were right for us, but you're right, and I've never heard it expressed so well like that before, that it, it you what, what you're trying to give them is the experience you had, but but it, it can't be done with the same tool. You've got to help them discover the one that is right for them that, that gives them that moment of permission, I guess. Right, right. And, you know, maybe it can be the same old thing. Uh, I mean, I don't want to... Same old thing makes it sound bad. But, like, you know, maybe somebody now would get into uh, Wheel of Time or something if they started it now. But maybe they'd be better served by getting into N.K. Jemison or something. You know, I think that something is maybe going to offend some people that have been in the business a long time. But I think that technology advances within art as well. I think that by virtue of the fact that authors today are competing with all the authors that came before and the fact that between uh, digital books and, you know, streaming and all these things, everyone making art now is competing directly for attention with everyone who came before. So you have to be better. You know, I worked for a while on a uh, at a publishing line that was republishing old pulps, you know, classic uh, science fiction and fantasy. And it wasn't nearly as good as what we've got now. You know, it was important, but there's not the same depth of character development. There's not the same you know, plot, there's not the same thoughtfulness, like people have really had to up their game over the last hundred years in this industry. And that's always going to happen. So I think, I don't know, I tend to lean toward reading new stuff rather than the the old masters, quote unquote. (laughs) Can you talk a bit about um, how you, it seems like a good point to kind of get into how you, I know it's a transition, not like a moment of, uh, of, becoming a writer but that is really what I'm going to ask you it's like how did you become a, a writer I realize I just I'm, the reason I'm stumbling over it is because I realize it's a, it can seem like a loaded question like when is the moment where you kind of grasped the sword and became the writer um there's no boss of writing who hires you but can you talk a little bit about how you made that transition from being someone who's growing up reading these books loving lots of them to uh being someone who writes and gets to do it there's been so many points right like if you want to talk about the first time i thought of myself as uh like achieving you know as a writer like i mean i had i had been writing stuff pretty much since i could read uh, because it kind of never occurred to me that i couldn't uh do that you know maybe this is the uh the classic white guy confidence they talked about but it just never occurred to me that i couldn't be an author you know uh but then i remember in sixth grade 
I wrote an autobiographical story for my English class about having to put my dog down. And it was very sad. And, you know, the teacher read it to the class and everybody cried. And then she gave it to my math teacher who read it to her class and everybody cried. And that was the first time where I went, oh, well, maybe I'm kind of good at this, you know, but it was still it was still many years. Wow. You know, I, I thought I would get into journalism. Um and so in college, I started writing uh, for the college newspaper, and that was super fun. I got once I got out of college, I realized that the sort of articles I liked to write, which was all, you know, rock reviews and like go have an adventure and write about it, you know, that kind of gonzo journalism. Uh, turns out people don't really want to pay you for that in the <laughs> real world. <laughs> so I quickly realized I needed to do something else. Uh, and I started working for the official Dungeons and Dragons magazines because that seemed perfect, right? It was like reporting, except I got to make everything up. Um, and of course I'd, you know, played tabletop role-playing games as a kid. And that, that was one where I just truly didn't realize there was a career option there. I've never thought to link Dungeons and Dragons and Gonzo journalism before, but I guess they are oddly similar, right? It was just, <laughs> that was the route in because I was looking for a magazine job and found out that these magazines were based in Seattle, where I was. And I went, oh, well, that sounds way better than any of the other you know places. Because I was working for like a local newspaper, you know, doing just sort of like little man on the street interviews or like, Hey, there's, they're opening a new retirement home. Go cover that. And I'd be like, oh, okay. Um, and so the chance to write about, you know, dragons and role-playing games seemed great. Um, so I literally just, and I was, I was straight out of college. I was 20 years old. And so I cold called basically the CEO of the company, <laughs> uh, because I didn't know any better. Uh, so I just sent an email in cause they were hiring for a, editor-in-chief for Amazing Stories magazine, classic, venerable science fiction magazine. So I responded to that email address and said, hey, I am totally unqualified for that position, but here's what I've done. Do you have anything else? Um, and Lisa Stevens, the CEO of Paizo, brought me in and for an interview and must have liked my, uh, my moxie because she hired me on the spot to find images for their web store they were building at a nicola jpeg that was my job <laughs> was just working for the web store uh and but then that led to an internship and then a customer service job and finally getting on to the magazines about a year later um so i was working on dungeons and dragons and then we made uh what like we made pathfinder which is a role-playing game similar to dungeons and dragons we kind of split off from DD to make that that got very successful and then I spent 13 years working my way up uh, through that to eventually being uh, the executive editor of Pathfinder, which also meant running the novel line, doing tie-in novels. And uh, also I was the creative director of the Starfinder role-playing game, which was sort of the science fiction fantasy version. And so I, you know, I did role-playing games for a long time. Along the way, I wrote uh, two novels um, Death's Heretic and the Redemption Engine, both of which were tied into Pathfinder, were set in that world. So, and then, you know, I left that company a couple years ago, and now I'm about to launch, uh, I guess, depending on when this goes live, maybe it just came out, uh, my first young adult romance novel, which is called Dark Hearts. 
and is a uh, young adult queer contemporary romance all about falling in love with your the boy who stole your shot at being a rock star. So that's my story in brief. And I didn't even touch on writing comic books and video games and all that stuff. So you can see there's like a dozen places in there where I went like, OK, now I've made it. OK, now I've made it right. Like, you know, publishing my first novel, you know, over 10 years ago, that really felt like, OK, now I have completed this journey. But, you know, I feel the same way now with my first young adult novel coming out, because this is the first time I've done one that was entirely, totally creator owned. Like this is mine. Nobody else contributed to it. Um, in terms of the story. And that feels like a, a fresh start as well. So I think I think the ugly truth is that I'm going to feel like uh, I've just started for the rest of my career. <laughs> Can we wheel back to I, I re, I'm really fascinated to know and the answer might be nothing. But um, I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your experience because we had uh, like various uh, people who have written in various capacities, uh, uh, role-playing adventures and that kind of thing. I wonder if you could t- reflect a little bit about your experience, um, what it's like to, uh, th- th- I mean, what goes into writing essentially a story that you don't get to write, that you've got to leave o- open and law. And because you talked a bit about, we were talking about wor- world building, how much you enjoyed it. In, in in one of your favorite early books that's still and I wonder if we, we could just talk a little bit about world building and creating ad- adventures and maybe um anything you've you've learned from that because it's uh, it it can sort of on the one hand it seems obvious it's like you make stuff up on the other it can seem to me sometimes like a real dark art like how do you go about creating an adventure and creating within a shared world and building law. So could you talk a little bit about that, please? Please. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I love the world building side. When it comes to role-playing games, that's the part that I really, you know, dug in and sort of invested on. Um, And so getting to create big parts of, you know, the Pathfinder role-playing game, uh, its setting, or the Starfinder uh, setting was actually, since I got to be the creative director, I got to base it in large part on this solar system I'd already created for Pathfinder. So, yeah, I've, I've done a lot of work there. And I think some of the big things to remember that also transfer over to fiction are... You need to make sure that the the details you're putting in are one interesting, that they actually are worth reading, um, and two that there's something the players or the readers, you know, the characters will actually interact with. And what I mean there is like sometimes when people world build, they'll create their this huge backstory with a thousand years of history for their world, and then there'll be no way for the players to actually interact with that information. So it's either you're just giving an info dump and the players are going, why does this matter? Uh, Or I mean, or they never address it at all. And you did all that work for nothing. And I think the same thing transfers over to novels where like spend your time building the parts of the world that the characters are actually going to interact with in the same way. If you're, whether you're making a novel or a game, if you're, 
if you need to design a world, like give yourself the broad strokes, you know, know, know the basics of the world, but then zoom in really hard on the areas the the players or the characters are actually going to be. You know, if all of your stuff takes place in if your story takes place in a single nation or a single city, spend all your time on that city. You only need to know the barest hints of the rest of it. I think oftentimes people feel like they need to create the entire world at once. And I think that that way leads to burnout and lost time. (laughs) And it can also make things feel very similar, right? Like you, you're trying to spread all of your ideas over an entire planet. You know, it's like that, uh, that Lord of the Rings line about, you know, too little butter spread over too much toast, you know? And so I think if you instead zoom in, do a deep dive on a particular spot And then, you know, later when the story goes elsewhere, do a deep dive on that particular spot. You know, building piecemeal gives you a chance to refill that well. And that way, you know, when you come back to do the next country a month later, you'll have taken in new media, you'll have read new books, and you're going to have a different flavor that you can bring to it rather than if you try to do it all at once. James, I want to like just ask you if you could drill down on you use the word you said one make it interesting and i wonder if you could unpack the uh what your personal definition of interesting is because i i think for a lot of us you know we you get lost in your own world and you might be i might be really interested in the sort of this line of ascension that i've invented and i don't know how do i know if that's interesting to someone else what if you got a working i know this is like saying what's funny it's almost an impossible question but what Have you got a working definition of what makes a piece of law interesting rather than just data? Yeah, well, I think part of it is, is it interesting to you? Um, Because you know what? If you're the sort of person where you're like, actually noble aristocratic lineages are super important to me and they're the thing that I love and they're what my book's all about, then, you know, run with it and you'll find that audience But I think too often people, like you say, just present data for data's sake. And so a way I always try to think about it is, especially in games, is this piece of information something that you could hang an adventure on, you know? And so when I'm designing an, you know, an inn or whatever, you know, I need to write a paragraph on the inn in this uh, near the city gates, Um, I could spend that time you know, writing out, well, here's the menu and here's how much it costs to stable your horse and do all that stuff. And like that is information, but it's not particularly interesting. It's not something that the game master couldn't come up with themselves. But if you instead say, okay, well, at this inn, the innkeeper is actually a reformed criminal who's on the run and knows that at any moment her old compatriots could kick down the door and come you know, drag her back in for one last job, you know, that's something that you can hang an adventure on. Or, you know, the portrait over the mantle is, you know, of a elven woman who died 100 years ago today. And, uh, you know, they say that on the solstice, you can hear this whispered code that nobody's ever been able to decipher. Like, that's something you can hang an adventure on. (laughs) And so, like, you know, I'm trying to give people those sorts of things. And I have a rule where, you know, if I'm writing a a gazetteer of a city or whatever, I try to make sure there's an adventure hook or something really interesting like that in every paragraph. Because fundamentally, 
what people are paying you for in role playing games is ideas. They're paying for you for the chance to go, oh, like, well, you know what? I could take that piece of information and I could do X, Y, and Z. You know, I'm I'm there as inspiration. I'm not there to tell the story. I'm there to raise questions that then the game master wants to answer for themselves. And so that's what I'm always trying to do. I also tell people, you know, think in cinematic terms. You know, if you're designing a world, think about what you'd put on the cover of your book. Think about the location that would be super cool in a high budget fantasy movie, you know, that kind of thing. Um, You know, so if you're designing a city, find three cool landscape shots that are like, that would be a great location for a fight or a scene or whatever. Um, Cause I think, I think we actually all inherently know what's cool and what speaks to us. We just have a tendency to get bogged down in all the little details. Cause we feel like uh, we feel like it should all have that, like that more data equals realism. And I think you really just got to cut to the stuff that makes you go, Oh, that's cool. And then follow your gut. I, I, I think that's amazingly good advice because every now and then I'll read a fantasy novel and it will just do something that I go, oh, oh, I don't believe you did that. But how, how, how have, oh, I suppose you are allowed. To, I suppose you, you're the author of this story. You are allowed to do that. And and then I go, oh, I, I, um, do I, do I accept that this happened? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of cool. I just didn't know that this was a story that had gnomes in, but here they are. I, but they are here. Oh, oh yeah, I guess you can do that. Yeah. Well, and you know, we were talking about books that were, you know, influential, and I can remember reading, uh, you know, being in my early twenties and reading Perdido Street Station for the first time, <laughs> and you know, you read Chanamieville, and immediately you're like, oh, this is fantasy, but it's not elves and dwarves. You've got bug-headed women that are pooping out, you know, drugs that give you some sort of weird dream thing, or you've got cactus people. And, you know, I think that that was really good for me to see that you can go just bonkers. And so whenever I'm feeling, whenever I'm feeling stuck, I try to just get weird. I try Mm. to just throw bizarre stuff at it. And then, you know, you can always weed out the stuff that doesn't work, but I think you want to get as much creativity on the page as possible. You know, just go stream of consciousness and see where you get. It's so funny you should say that because when you were describing, you know, making something interesting, I was immediately thinking of, you know, the classic movie. You said think of it like a movie. I was thinking of like cantina scenes, right, where it swings across and you see a bunch of people and not all those aliens and species. You don't get all their backstories, but you get a hint of this huge world. And I love that. I always talk about the power of illusion with an A, where I love when I'm reading a book and, you know, one of the characters is just like tosses off a line like, oh, you know, uh, yeah, they had just gotten back from the forbidden city of Griffins uh, that floats on, you know, the river of fire. And then they just continue right along. And I go, <laughs> wait, 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 I want to I want to know more about that or even just names, names that are, you know, are totally unexplained. If somebody's like, oh, well, we could go to, uh, you know, Kobushan the Unmoored. Well, what is that? I don't know. Like, is it unmoored because it's uh, a city of rafts that are all like sort of adrift together? Or is it unmoored in time and it's constantly flickering in and out? You know, that kind of thing. 
I love the unexplained. Um, and I really like, I feel like cyberpunk actually was where I learned that because they often would drop you right in with all this jargon that you didn't necessarily understand. But I think you can apply that to anything, any genre. Uh, I, that's, oh, that's making me so excited to hear that. Um, can, okay. Well then can you talk about how you've then, it feels like you've got all this amazing kind of background and, and, and this, this genre of creating uh, adventures where you can kind of stuff loads in. And then actually I can see why st- trying sort of YA romance can feel like starting again, because there's a bunch of stuff there that you have to almost unlearn. And then you have to put a character in and have definite stuff happen to them. You know, you're not stepping back and letting the players populate it. So could you talk a little bit about the, why you wanted to do it and the challenges and, um, and, and, and what you enjoyed about it? Well, and fortunately, you know, I'd already written two novels and I'd edited, you know, this novel line of like 40 novels. So I, you know, I knew how novels worked. But it was the uh, it is my first young adult book. It's my first contemporary book. Um, and it's a romance book, which I only started reading romance a couple years ago. Uh, but for me, it was really uh, in the pandemic. I was, you know, working on this big dystopian science horror book and I just lost steam. I just couldn't deal with something that dark. And so a friend got me reading a whole bunch of uh, contemporary young adult romance And it was just so much fun because it's the thing I love about romance and uh, especially contemporary romance is it's all about voice. It's all about voice and character because you basically know the stakes and they're not particularly high. It's will or won't these two characters get together. You know, it's usually not the world's going to explode. And there's usually not a lot of world building uh, because it's set in the real world. And so you really just have to focus in on voice and character, um, which is really refreshing. I think sometimes fantasy can get into this place where all the characters are little pawns that you're moving around, especially in epic fantasy. And I just wanted something that felt very different. Um, that said, there is stuff that you can bring from uh, you know, gaming or fantasy world building into contemporary romance. Like, so I... I tried to approach the book. uh, The book Dark Hearts is set in Seattle, which is where I live. It's, you know, in my own neighborhood. But I really tried to approach it as if it were a fantasy novel and say, like, okay, what are the locations in Seattle that would be super fun and interesting? What, you know, what vistas do I want people to see and imagine? What interactions would be cool? But instead now, instead of like, where would there be an epic fight scene? It's like, where would there be an epic date? You know, like Mm. what would be just like the coolest date to go on? Um, And so really trying to take that same world building approach to immerse people in, (laughs) in the world that I live in. That's awesome. Act as a tour guide to my own city. Kind of. Yeah. It's almost like you've got the little gazetteer of Seattle and you're going like, okay, where's the adventurers going to go to? Where's the, where's their equivalent of the tavern? Where's the weapon shop or whatever. And then you send them out to there and then find something interesting. That 
I guess like because we often have thought about sort of exoticizing uh, culture uh, in, in its purely negative iteration, which is taking someone else's uh, culture that one doesn't know very well and making it out to be, you know, mysterious and foreign and unknowable and inhuman. But of course, you're talking about sort of the positive sense of it, which is defamiliarizing um, something you know very well um, to make it seem fresh and alive in a way that I guess is true when you're in love, right? Well, yeah, I hadn't even made that connection. But yeah, exactly. Finding the fantastic in everything. Um, And, you know, I also had one other uh, big advantage on this in that while the book is not autobiographical, um, strictly speaking, uh, it does draw a lot on my own experience. So the book is all about uh, this character, David, who when he was in middle school, he formed a band with his best friends. Uh, you know, they played a bunch, but then egos got big and he stormed out. And then as soon as he did, the band got huge without him. So now his former best friends are world, you know, class pop stars and he's stuck in high school. Um, and of course, you know, he comes back in contact with the lead singer and, you know, they go from frenemies to lovers as they realize like, Oh, maybe I'm kind of into you. Um, and then he thinks, well, maybe this is my chance to get back into the band and reclaim this fame that I've been denied. But of course, you know, that sort of concern is maybe not the greatest way to start a relationship of like, hi, I love you. And also I'm going to use you, you know? <laughs> so uh, anyway, the the point about the connection to me is that when I was a, you know, a teen, I started a punk band and, you know, well, we never got world famous, you know, we we played a lot of shows. We got on the radio a couple of times. And I remember very clearly being like 18 and seeing bands that were younger than me start getting signed and thinking, well, I've missed my shot. Like I'm clearly, <laughs> I'm clearly a has been. And especially once the band broke up, I was thinking like, okay, well I'm, you know, I'm not even in college yet. And now my life is over. And I, you know, I really tried to make the book, about that feeling of what do you do when the thing that you thought was going to be your life path turns out to not actually be the way things work out. You know, we're all told to like hustle for our dreams and like you can you can do it. You can be the rock star. You can be the astronaut. But the truth is, most of us never reach that. So how do you as a teenager live with the fact that you're not going to be the person you thought um, and then, of course, it's also a, you know, sort of queer epiphany story, uh, sort of echoing my own realization that like, oh, maybe I wasn't maybe I'm not as straight as I always thought I was, you know, and so he's going through that in the book as well. Uh, so it's all about just what do you do when the labels that you use to define yourself, you know, to yourself no longer apply? It sounds like from what you're saying that though, that, that you're really sort of embracing the uh i'm gonna i'm gonna i was, I was gonna use the pretentious term dialectic there but i'll just say the the contradiction of um change being uh, involving a kind of uh mourning period for what you thought your life story was but it also being liberating as well as you go oh so i don't i don't have to be that person because there's like whole new paths spreading out for me. Is that, would you say that's fair? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, the book is about, yeah, that idea of, okay, the old dreams, the old idea of where your life was going doesn't fit anymore. 
but maybe there are new dreams and new life paths that can fit even better, you know, and that willingness to let the person that you thought you were go in order to figure out who you actually are. Can you talk a bit about um, some, when you're writing for a YA audience, I, 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 re- I realize you you must constantly be having a feeling of like I, I I this is a specific audience that I'm writing for but the absolute worst thing I could do would be to be condescending or patronizing right so like how do you modulate you know make sure that you're aiming for an audience which whenever we write any type of book we're always aiming at an audience right we're trying to think about their needs how do you do that without immediately sort of growing leather elbow patches and tweeds and turning into like a a, a parody of like a a, a sort of patronizing like dad like how how was that for you (laughs) exactly yeah well so the honest truth is that I didn't try to change my voice. If anything, I'd say that Dark Hearts is the most natural voice I've had because, you know, in fantasy, I was often trying to look for a particular voice, um, you know, because the characters were very different from me. In this version, the character is super similar to me. You know, like everybody in the book, uh, although I will say, uh, being the age that I am, I find myself in young adult media really identifying with the parents in a way yeah. that I wouldn't have expected. I'm always watching teen movies and being like, that dad is doing the best he can. Yeah. You know? yeah. But no, I think for me, it was really just a matter of trying to use my natural voice, but tapping into the way all my ele- emotions were elevated when I was young, you know, like really, that feeling that everything is so important and so significant when you're that age. Um, and really just saying like, okay, let's treat this as if it is all that important. Uh, cause I think it's often easy to dismiss, uh, those things as like, Oh, well you're, this only matters, you know, so much to you because you've never been here before. Like you never been in love. And so of course your first love is going to feel different, but like, I don't think you should necessarily minimize that. I think that's kind of a beautiful, important thing. Um, And right. There's sometimes it does work out. Sometimes it is forever, you know, so you just don't know. Um, But yeah, so I actually didn't really hold back at all. Um, And I was surprised, you know, I thought I wouldn't be able to swear or I wouldn't be able to be crude. And my editor was like, nah, go for it. Like, you know, put more sex in the book. And I was like, oh, okay, great. Um, because I think I also really wanted to see a book where, you know, it's, it's queer romance between two teen boys where they actually feel like teenage boys. Cause I think, and this is going to sound harsh, like all respect to, uh, you know, the other authors of male, male romance out there. But I think sometimes there's a tendency to write, uh, gay men as the ideal of straight women. You know, where it's like, uh, I think sometimes you see straight female authors writing these guys where it's like, oh, well, this is just a straight guy with incredible emotional intelligence who, like, is very clean and has all these things, you know. Um, And so I think that, you know, I wanted to show a book where it's like these are still 17 year old boys. They are gross. They are horny. They are sweaty. They are not in touch with their feelings, you know, and they're going to make dick jokes all the time, you know. And so. (laughs) 
And they've got to have, and, and you, you can't have too much emotional intelligence, at least at the beginning. Otherwise, you've got no plot because they just sit down and go, you know what? Like, we need to, I feel like we need to talk about our feelings. And I've got some conflict here. And I, I don't want this to, you know, there would be no, there would just be a nice conversation. The story would be over. Yeah. And so I like, I wanted, you know, it's a romance. And like, I think that they are lovable characters, but they're also, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make them real. And a lot of the humor coming out of that realism Um, but I also, one thing I will say about the voice is I did not really try to incorporate a bunch of Gen Z slang. I kind of just used my own slang because I feel like it's so difficult unless you get it pitch perfect. It's so difficult to not fall into that uncanny valley where you're using the slang wrong or by the time the book comes out, the language has already moved on. And so I think people actually should give teenagers more credit. I think that, you know, since most young adult media is written by adults, I think teens are used to the fact that it's written by adults. And so they're comfortable translating stuff written by an older generation uh, and applying it to their own context. I don't think you have to do that for them. I think a kid can read, you know, a John Green book that was written 20 years ago and still get something out of it. Uh, you know, even though it's not, you know, specifically tailored for them because the ideas, the characters, you know, they can take the universals and view it through the lens of their own life. And so I kind of, you know, I, I didn't particularly worry about it. I'm sure I've seen, you know, the occasional review saying, oh, these references are so dated. And I'm like, you know, I am the age that I am and I'm not going to try and hide it. And like, I hope that the story is enjoyable enough that, uh, that it's fun for people of all ages. Um, so yeah, I, I'm sure that you've wanted everything that you've created and put out there to be uh, well received. But did writing this make you feel especially vulnerable because it is so personal, and because it is? I mean, I you know I find romance one of the hardest things to write about just because I'm I'm terrified that anything I write people will go oh you're just this is just you've just opened a window to your inner heart this is how you are in your most private moments anything to do with sex will be you are describing verbatim how you are as a lover lover and what you think is important you know like I I I constantly feel that and I I, I feel very vulnerable writing about any of those things I wonder. I'm not, you know, obviously when you wrote, you know, your fantasy work, you wanted it to be good and you wanted people to enjoy it and have a lovely time. But I wonder if this was, how have you dealt with with that if you have felt more exposed or, or does it not, is it just business as usual? Well, I mean, I definitely feel, I definitely feel more exposed and I also just feel like there's more on the line, right? You know, uh, for better or for worse, you know, when I was working on Pathfinder and Starfinder and Dungeons and Dragons, you know, I was with a whole team. You know, we all collectively had built this setting, had built this game, um, you know, and so I was able to uh, sort of wrap myself in that team camaraderie. Um, and this is the first book where I'm really out here solo on my own um, and, you know, drawing so much from my own life. You know, there are there are scenes that are plucked right out of uh, my memories, you know, <laughs> the sort of thing, right. You know, where you have to send a book to somebody and go, Hey, uh, hope this is cool. <laughs> you know, like you may recognize chapter, you know, whatever. Um, but 
I don't know. I'd say I'm more nervous about the fact that this is starting in a whole new genre and it's kind of starting a new career as just a novelist. Like that's really, I mean, I still do game work and I'm actually have a new Starfinder comic series launching right now, but this is the thing that I've wanted since I was, you know, five. So yeah, it's scary, but that's also part of the fun, especially since so far it actually has been really well received. Um, so I think I think it's connecting with the people that I want they really wanted to reach. So I guess I guess that's one of the lessons of romance, right? Is is that like vulnerability is scary, but it often is what yields the best rewards, you know, because people get to see, you know, what you really care about. Yeah. Also, I think people don't understand how passionate uh romance and like young adult readers are. Um, you know, it's Business-wise, you know, if we're just talking about the publishing side, like there's a lot more money in young adult romance than there is in adult fantasy, and it's because there's a lot more readers. Like it's just a, a totally different scale. Um, so it's fun to be playing in that, you know, in that sandbox. And you know, it's with the book is coming out from Macmillan, um, from uh, Wednesday Books, which is part of Macmillan. So this is sort of my big five debut. So yeah, it's. It's a rocket launch, and we'll see if I explode on the launch pad or achieve orbit. But so far, um, so good. That's really exciting. I wonder if um, I just there's a couple of kind of quick fire things I, I I want to ask just to kind of close things off. Um, I want I, I wanted to ask if you because we talked a little bit about romance, and I I wonder if there's any um people who either at the moment you've particularly enjoying or that in the past you've read that you particularly enjoyed I know I don't want to put you on the spot and say like authors that you like because sometimes people go I don't want to I'm going to miss out someone I love but I just like either in fantasy or in romance some people that you uh dig who are either your peers or in the past that you've read that you think people might enjoy um have you got any recommendations or stuff that has particularly worked for you that you've been like oh this is I, I really enjoyed this oh yeah I mean uh God, it's, it's always hard to choose. But off the top of my head, um, you know, Casey McQuiston, who wrote Red, White and Royal Blue and other stuff like that. That's uh, those books are really what made me want to try writing a young adult romance. Um, I also love Jeff Zentner in the uh, young adult space. Um, uh, I just read uh, The Lesbiana's Guide to Catholic School by, I think, Sonora Reyes. And that was really fun. Um, on the science fiction and fantasy side, there's kind of too many to name but i recently read leech by hyron ennis and that was you want to talk about weird gonzo uh sort of it's like gothic fantasy with a non-lovecraft lovecraftian element and that book is just bonkers um so i really enjoyed that um let's see who else See, this is the problem. If I start plugging some of my friends, you feel like you're, you're, even you're, like you're leaving people out. Yeah, I'll sure. Sto- I'll stop there while I'm ahead. Hopefully. Um, and I, I just, I had a kind of like, uh, before I move on to just finishing off with it, with a couple of like, maybe if you've got any writing tips, the one question I'm just desperate to know, and you might not be able to, might be like asking you to pick a, like a favorite kid or something, but I was wondering with Starfinder and with Pathfinder, do you have like a particular favorite uh monster or heritage or 
uh, creature or something like that because you know I'm I'm a kobolds guy like I think that's what I'm like known uh, for I just I, I, I don't know why I think maybe because they're so nervous I definitely like feel like I nervous and resentful are two things that I can definitely uh, relate to um, I was just wondering if there are any that you particularly sort of like you've got carrying a torch in your heart for yeah yeah so um, in Starfinder uh, one of the primary playable species is this uh, race called the Sheeran. Um, and they are sort of our bug people. And the thing that I love about them is that, so they were originally part of this, uh, sort of independence day style, like locust swarm of intergalactic, you know, devouring creatures. Um, and then they were able through a divine intervention to split off away from the hive mind and gain free will as individuals. And so they're super obsessed with making choices for themselves. Um, but they're, you know, they're very community oriented. It's not like they're space libertarians, like they're very into choice, but also very into community. Uh, but the thing that I particularly love is that because they've got these, you know, reward centers in their brain, they can become addicted to making choices. They get drunk off of making choices for themselves. So like Ashiran walks into the bar and like, they don't need to order a drink. Just looking at the menu and like <laughs> ordering the drink, not drinking the drink <laughs> is enough for them. And they can actually become addicts. They can become option junkies where they just, uh, you know, lose themselves in the act of making trivial choices. And I just think that's so much fun. They also um, I'm I've got one right now in the the comic series I'm writing. One of the heroes is a Sheeran. Uh, and he carries his um, his son, his larva around in a little clear cylinder on his belt uh, so that the larva can sort of see the universe mm -hmm. and get a sense of it. And, you know, therefore make his own informed choices when he grows up. And I just I love little details like that and how they can spiral out into a whole society. Wow, that's so cool. Thank you. That's amazing. Um. I, 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 so to finish off, I just wanted to ask, uh, when, you know, you, 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 you had to write some stuff that is, you know, very much, you, you know, you're given a task and you're doing it and some stuff that you've been able to have a kind of Sheeran like freedom to make your own choices and be self-determining. And I, I wonder, um, throughout that, um, have you learned any, because I know you, you sometimes share sort of bits of sort of writing nuggets and tips on Twitter. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about any things, don't, don't mind what, um, that you have found about the writing process that you've learned that you feel like maybe you can do it, you can do a little bit better now or some pitfalls that you've involved or some things that you're able to use now, um, that might be useful to other writers who are um, going through similar things. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, I, so one quote that very early on, I found that got me through sort of the early years um, is actually from Orson Scott Card. And I have my issues with Orson Scott Card, but this is still a good quote uh, where he said, send out today the best work you're capable of doing today. In a year, you'll be better. But in a year, you should be working on the things you're excited about at that time, not revising this year's stuff. And I think that's so true. You know, for for better or worse, I've been publishing since I was, you know, 1920. And so, you know, I've I've sort of grown up like you can dig back into my history and find stuff where I was not nearly as good or mature when I wrote it. 
But I think that's what you got to do. I think you can't be afraid to put yourself out there. You know, writing a writing career is uh, is equal parts hubris and humility. You need the humility to listen when somebody says, hey, I think, you know, this might not be working. But you also need the hubris to believe that your story is worth telling. You know, everybody out there wants to be an artist. Why should it be you? Well, why not? You know, <laughs> um, and so I think. You really just got to believe in yourself like that. I think you do, you know, it's trite, but you do kind of just have to sit down and put words on the page. Um, I think I often find that stream of consciousness is really useful for me. Um, And that came from, you know, working uh, both on the magazines and on Pathfinder in the earlier days when, you know, a book is going to print in an hour and you find you're a column short and somebody says, hey, I need 300 words on, you know, orcs right now. And you have to just sit down and come up with something. I find that's often where a lot of my best stuff comes from because I don't have time to think about it enough to get anxious about it. Can you, can you explain what you mean by stream of consciousness? Yeah. So, you know, uh, if it's something like, you know, I I can think of like, OK, so. Somebody says, hey, you need to write something. Uh, you need to design a fantasy city right now. Go. I'll just start talking and just keep throwing as much weird stuff as I can find in there until I find something. And so I'll say like, OK, well, I need to create a city. It's a city of mermaids and it's built into the shell of a giant moon snail that's crawling across the bottom of the ocean floor. And inside is a psychic brain coral, which is the collective memory of uh, all, you know, all the people who have lived there. And so you've got these weird, um, you know, uh, sorcerers that can trepan themselves so that they can go stick their brain matter directly onto the coral and learn these thoughts, you know, and I'll just riff. Um, you know, I've, I've always said that that's like the main, <laughs> one of my main job skills is, um, <laughs> I, I, to BS on command basically. <laughs> and I think that's a really useful skill to have because you may find, as I usually have found, you know, you start talking and at the start, maybe there's nothing there, but by the end there's something that you can work with. So you just have to get your fingers moving. That's so cool. And I think that's a lovely point to close the, the, the idea of BSing on command, but I think it's also, it's so often it's very refreshing because I think sometimes like with fantasy and thinking of the classics, they can, we can sometimes regard them as if the authors almost like discovered these these relics and then they were they were just and and they can feel like they they're canon and that can feel like something that's very hardened and not about play and that idea of going what do you think could have happened well well, and can i tell you i was terrified to write a novel like i didn't you know i had always wanted to write a novel and i didn't until i was in my 20s because it just seemed uh, like every book that i loved was up on this pedestal and i didn't see how i could possibly reach it and it wasn't until i became an editor and started uh you know commissioning books and working with people all through the process that i realized that you know every great novel starts out as a pile of trash <laughs> You know, like and it's you know, that's not a slam on any of the amazing authors I've worked with. It's just you have to sift through the mud until you find, you know, that one little nugget of an idea 
that's good. And then you build around that, you know, it's, you accrete around it like a pearl. Um, and that seeing that messy process and realizing that it is just a thing that real people do, it's a job that gave me the confidence to go, Oh, okay. Maybe I can actually do this. You know, um, I think we all have the problem of measuring ourselves against the final products that we see out there, whether it's, somebody's measuring our first draft against somebody's book or measuring ourselves against their Facebook highlights. Right. So I think you just have to realize that it all starts as garbage and you can make that garbage into something wonderful. James, thank you so much for chatting. I've had a wonderful time. What a, what a lovely way to end. Uh, and um, so uh, Dark Hearts, uh, your uh, YA romance novel is out on the 6th of June. So when this comes out, it will either be just about to come out or will have just come out. Um, if people want to, I'll put a link in the show notes for people to either pre-order or grab a copy. Um, but if people want to uh, find you online and find out more about your work and what you're up to, where's the best place for them to go? Um, please check out my website is just jameslsutter.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter for as long as that lasts, at <laughs> James L. Sutter, or now on Instagram as well. Uh, I think I'm also just James underscore L underscore Sutter there. Um, so yeah, come find me. Come say hi. I'm always happy to chat with people about this stuff. Awesome. I'll put links to those in the description of today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.